You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to episode 15 of Notes from Norwich. I'm Chris. I'm one of the three hosts, and I'm here with the other two who are going to introduce themselves right now. I'm JM. I'm Marguerite. There, we've got our introductions out of the way. <laughs> this is episode, <laughs> yeah, this is episode 15. We're just trucking right along, and people are listening to this, and that's good news for us. That makes us happy. And we are um, dealing with chapters 34 and 35 today. Uh, 34's got some good stuff in it, and 35 is, uh, what do the kids say? It hits different. It's a, there's some potent stuff in there. So where should we begin? Should we just jump right in? Two secrets. Two secrecies. Two secrecies. Sorry. What do you think the difference is? Is there a difference or is this just a verbiage? Oh no, I think there's a big difference. How so? The first one she describes as being a secret until the last day when we'll see it. And then the second secrecy, uh, she says, has been revealed through her revelation Mm -hmm. and that it's there for us to learn. Mm -hmm. It's there for us to over, as a process, I'm I'm getting, um, to learn and understand it bit by bit as we grow in the Lord. And... It's a matter, you know, it's a matter of our readiness and that they are, uh, they're things that we, that we learn bit by bit as we grow. And then she also says that, um, that they are revealed and shown to us by the church. So. So a secret versus a secrecy. One right. secret is not mm. to be revealed, whereas this maybe she's trying to get at the idea of secrecy, including this concept of the secrets that he openly shows. Yes. It's just strange to me that she calls what, he, what God shows her still secrets. And I, I I think I'm I'm maybe overthinking this like <laughs> this concept of what what is a secret and it's like mystery and I don't know if this maps onto the the word mysterion like um hmm. what what does it mean for these things that he's revealing to her to be secrets like what does that mean well, if I tell you a secret, I've given you a definite piece of information that's meant for you, mm-hmm. but not for other people. Well, a mystery is an indefinite piece of information that you can't figure out. Mm. Okay. It's, is, I mean, I'm just taking a stab at it because that's a very yeah. good question that you've asked. And I would, I would say that the difference between the two, like a secret, is a knowable piece of information that is limited in the scope of its knowing, like Mm. not everybody, it's not broadcast to everybody. Mm. If I tell you what my social security number is, that's a, that's a, an objective, factual, knowable piece of data, but I'm, we don't want that shared with everybody. So I'm not going to say it here on this podcast, Uh, (laughs) um, but it begins with a number. I will tell you that. (laughs) And that's the mystery of my social security number. Um, And so I think, um, so in that sense, Julian can call what God is revealing to her secrets because it's, it's information that is parceled out to who, to the people who have earned it or who, God wants to need to know it. Yeah. So it is specific. Um, like there's a specificity. Hmm. 
Yeah, but when we're talking about divine things, that specificity might be right. more than just a, like a sentence or two. <laughs> it probably is. Well, like the showing where where she sees the hazelnut or where she sees the thing that is the size of a hazelnut. Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't really at the same level as somebody's social security number. I mean, that is something that still has to be, though it was revealed, like here, here it is, and everything that's made was in it. Um, it's, there's still a lot to figure out about that, and you can spend your entire lifetime figuring it out. <clears throat> it, has, it doesn't really, it gives us a way of looking at something, but not necessarily an answer. She talks about the, that there, these things that God reveals are secrets to us, partly because God wills that they be secrets to us, and partly because of our blindness and our ignorance. Um, and so these, these revelations, she, so she talks about God having pity around our weaknesses. And so then revealing things make the secrets more open so that we can know him and love him. So if this idea of a specific, a specific revelation um, in order for us, in order to, meet us in our weakness. God is revealing himself specifically to us in, in concrete ways. And I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about last week, what I was talking about, like, as we contemplate God, are we contemplating God in the like grand abstract or are we contemplating God as God has revealed himself to us in, in concrete specific terms in Christ? Um, and this maybe touches on that idea that like, we are, we are weak. God, God is there. God is loving us for us to see, and we're, we're weak and we're not getting it. And so God reveals himself in these secrets to us so that we can know him. that these these secrets are um, they're 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 linked to the the, the incarnation as part of this secret this the specific revelation that God makes to us um, because we can't get him in the general sense dog is having a time that's uh granger in the background <laughs> so what's the role of the church in all this well julian says that the church is there to teach us the truths about God. That the church's role is a continuous, continuous revelation of God's truth, goodness, power, and mercy to us. And that God works through the church as I'm reading it. To make, to make us know, to help us to learn about God. The um, church is the means through which we receive these secrets revealed to us. Yes. God showed me the very great pleasure that he has in all men and women who strongly and humbly and willingly receive the preaching and teaching of Holy Church. For he 
is Holy Church. He is the foundation. He is the essence. He is the teaching. He is the teacher. He is the goal. And he is the reward for which every natural soul toils. It's a pretty bold claim. It is. This strong identification of the the being, of the essence of God with the essence of the church itself. I think Julian was was eager to assert her loyalty to the church to underscore her her commitment her commitment to the church she felt that the church gave her wisdom truth what she needed and she felt that the church would continue to do that what else is there but the church she might have said it's not first of all in those days there was just the church there weren't 30,000 denominations so if people were going to find out anything about god they would probably find out find it out at church and the church of course then has this massive responsibility to pour those truths out to their congregation and i think i think she would have said and i would say based on reading julian that this is a process for the church as it's a process for each of us that the church the church in so far as god is the church the church has everything but the people who are speaking from the church in the pulpits on the processions or whatever they are still human fallen creatures just to, just as we are and to the extent that their striving is beautiful and holy and true, they are certainly more likely to be able to bring truth to us. And we, in our hopefully holy striving wisdom and toil, as she says, will we'll find those truths as well. I think one of the, uh, so this notion that there are secrets that God is revealing to her, to Julian, and I think to to each of us kind of progressively, um, in my mind is linked together with, with catechesis, with kind of church instruction in the content of the faith that goes along with the natural development of our psychological capabilities. We're not, well, I'll speak for myself. I wasn't born (laughs) with um, full-blown reasoning and understanding of things. I mean, probably not until my mid-20s did I really have my act together in terms of uh, kind of the ability to think things through and understand consequences and put two and two together. And I'm constantly learning new things. I think um, most people are, I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but our, our minds and our souls don't work the same way when we're in our preteens as when we're 20, as when we're 40, as when we're 60 we have different capabilities as time goes on and thanks be to God that God doesn't reveal 
everything all at once because if you if you took very sophisticated theology and gave it to a child what would they do with it but if you similarly if you took childish child child appropriate explanations for the stuff that you find in scripture or in life and try to apply it to adults of course it's unsatisfying and i think that's frankly one reason why there are these kind of breaking points in the development of people where 10 where people have a higher likelihood of dropping away from church membership you know when they're 13 or 14 seems to be one of them and then when they get to college um and there are other times but i think it's because developmentally people as they're growing up kind of switch gears pretty dramatically at these points and the church needs to be right there with the the next okay like you understood like noah's ark and the cuddly animals and now we need you to understand like sin Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then later on we need you to understand like self-control and um so the catechesis the training the revelation of the truths of god have to be able to match people where they are even as they're constantly changing and that's a really hard thing to do um especially as a program you know like as a a provision of goods and services to whole categories of people, which is how a lot of our larger parishes do it. Mm-hmm. It's probably a lot easier once upon a time when spiritual direction was one-on-one. I think that's, that's a good role for a good spiritual director, director or confessor to play in someone's life, to be able to give them what they need at the level that they need it at the moment that they need it and like, you know, peel back the next layer of the onion at just the right time. So as not to overwhelm or frustrate or scandalize or leave unsatisfied people. That's an awesome responsibility for the church to bear. (laughs) Um, yes, <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't, I don't say that in a like in a refuting way, but it's um, like that. Um, what you have said, I think, is a, a a framing of what this, what Julian's sweeping statements about the church looks like, a nitty gritty level of personal catechesis, um, for the for the church to be this, 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 this fount of our understanding of God, um, for that, for that to play out, it has to be these, um, the peeling back of the onion layer, the, the walking alongside people. I, I, Julian sets out this grand scheme and then you talk about like the, the nitty gritty, like what happens at a, at a parochial level. Um, and it just strikes me that like, like Marguerite, you said, like the, the, the people that are agents of the church are fallen human beings. Um, and it's, it's sobering to me how often we, we fail at this um this task that is set before us um to convey these secrets that god has revealed and charges us to to disseminate um i i've been thinking um about the question of the infallibility of the church and part of part of that has been the uh the capital d discourse of late around um around the roman catholic church and its its claims about itself to 
not have aired. Um, and I think about, I think about this awesome responsibility that the church has and, um, and the care with which that, that, that responsibility has to be lived out on the ground level. Um, and I think about the, the utter brokenness of the church in a lot of respects. Um, and it's hard for me to square, um, square any sense of the church being infallible. And, and here I'm not even just talking about the Roman church. It, it, it's difficult for me to see the church period as living up to this mandate. And so I guess I'm not sure how to approach that with Julian, this, this idea that the, the church falls short of Christ as the foundation, essence, teaching, teacher, goal, and reward. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that question would even like make sense in her kind of theological framework, given where she was at, but I don't, where where I'm at, I'm not sure how to approach that question with her as as a companion. Um, how how do I square this ecclesiology that she's putting forward, which is deeply compelling to me? Like it is, it is it, this whole section, the way she talks about the church is powerful and compelling. Um. And I struggle to put that in conversation with the reality I see of the church. And I don't, I don't know how to solve that, that tension, that paradox. Well, honestly, I don't think the church could ever be, could ever fully realize its, its role. Um, I don't think it even has to. In a way, I don't even think it should because everything is growth. Everything is is urging and toiling and moving toward God. And so even as we do that, so does the church. The church has existed for 2,000 years, and it started out, and it still is there for people. I mean, people who long for God will show up at the door of a church when, once we open back up again at some point. But that's, to me, that is the marvel. The marvel that it is that people who, who want it and need it can go there. And yes, there's always going to be disappointments. I mean, I've been disappointed many, many times, but it's nothing it's the disappoint that's it's nothing compared with the fact that 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 church is there for me and that if i want to if i want to talk about jesus and what jesus means to me i know where to go and i know who to talk to and if i want to learn how to pray better or find out what god means to other people i know where to go and i know who to talk and it it's it's miraculous. It is absolutely miraculous that that still is there for us, given all the mess, all the mess over the 2000 years of um, the money and the abuse and the power and the, uh, and the disruption and the corruption. I mean, (laughs) but anyway, it's still there. It's still there for us. And so if it were if it were somehow perfect, that wouldn't be the way the creation is set up. Creation isn't set up for us to to have perfection here. 
I mean, there is no tree that is perfect. However, you might look at a tree and think, oh, that tree, there is no tree that is perfect. There is no flower. There is no rabbit. There is no anything that everything is missing. Everything is, it has lost something or is, is minus something. And so we just have to keep toiling and toiling and toiling. So setting aside the, um, the falling short, not as unimportant, but to focus instead on the fact that those, these secrets, these mysteries are still being conveyed by the church. That that is, that is the miracle. That that's a helpful framing for me um, to kind of bracket the, uh, the questions of, and the questions and problems of the church falling short of its mission. Um, and to celebrate that despite all that, this deposit of faith has been given to the people faithfully. That it is, it is a place where, it is the place where we can go to see these secrets revealed in the person of Jesus. Yet increasingly, uh, and I heard it a lot when I lived in Seattle, I still hear it a little bit these days, but I used to hear it all the time in Seattle. People claim to um, get all of the secrets from God revealed that they need, you know, out in nature. I just go up in the mountains. I don't, that's my church. Or I go out to the garden. Or, you know, I go deer hunting, <laughs> ironically. I sit there and shoot something, and that's my, uh, well. Dear listeners, Marguerite just threw up her arms in despair. <laughs> but this is, uh, you know, an, a, an aspect of the spiritual but not religious vibe of of the age we're in and i've you know i've um i've had you know as as a priest i've had a, a number of parishioners who kind of just stop showing up and then i get in touch with them and kind of ask them what's going on with them and time and time again they say you know i just i i i have i have my prayer time i have everything i need my relationship with god is completely satisfied i get everything that i need from it you know out in nature or something i don't need the church with all of its nonsense <laughs> um to um mediate a relationship with god for which i don't really have a good answer because I'm not going to get into an argument with, mm-hmm. with, with somebody. Um, I mean, I have an answer in my mind, but I don't. What is I the answer in I your mind? Uh, that God is everywhere, of course, but Christ is best revealed um, or God is best revealed in Christ and Christ is best revealed in his body, which is the church. Um, and if I'm taking it a step further, the actual spiritual transformation that is any kind of true spiritual transformation has to involve learning to put up with 
exasperating other human beings, mm-hmm. or it's no real spirituality at all. But I love going out into the mountains or the desert or the beach as much as anyone else. And I find transcendence in the natural world and peace and quiet. But even uh, an introvert such as myself recognizes that spiritual transformation that doesn't involve putting up with other humans with their annoying habits, (laughs) all their blessings and frustrations. Um, It's not giving me an opportunity to practice the art and the craft of love if I'm not actually dealing with people. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it feels good for a little while to just kind of go out and look at a, a tree for a while. It does feel good. It's very relaxing, very peaceful, but that's not love and transformation Christian or not, whatever your spiritual background is, if your spirituality isn't helping you to become better at loving, what good is it? Amen. (laughs) There, that's my blunt ad. (laughs) Don't at me. (laughs) No, you can't at me. I deleted my Twitter account. Somebody said you should, uh, uh, it was a uh, Brit actually mother Brit. She said, you should leave all groups that aren't good for your sanctification. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I'm getting off Twitter. <laughs> There's too much, too much stuff on there. Um, but that's, that's a whole other thing. Do we, do we, we have to make sure we get to chapter 35 because yes. there's good and evil in there. I think we need to talk about it. Uh, we do. So are we fast forwarding to like to reading 71 there or do, do we have other stuff to say in this first part? But the juicy stuff is, is that like the evil that our Lord tolerates, right? Do you agree? Do we want to get right into that? I I think there's, we have to start with that first part. There is juice in this because she wants to know the fate of a certain creature that she loved. Like she, Hmm. she wants to know in this grand revelation about a specific creature who knows i mean okay my imagination goes to a child that has died and she she wants to know its fate but i don't i don't think i don't think what the creature is is important she is interested in knowing this specific thing um and she's foiled in that um and she she sees that as her hindering herself by being preoccupied with this specific question um that she's distracting herself from the point okay so talk about it The point being, um, God in all, she, she is trying to get us to grasp the big picture, the, the, um, so it's like she wants to pick up the magic eight ball and say, I know, God, you're talking generally about goodness and how everything's going to work out, but this specific person who will remain unidentified, is it her? Is it a child? Is it her lover? Who Doesn't knows? matter. Doesn't matter. We can, um, we can come up with all sorts of scandalous <laughs> possibilities. But so she asked for a specific, like picking up the magic eight ball, will things be okay for X? And the response is, as if it were by a friendly go-between, basically don't get bogged down in details. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the, the higher good is to see the grand graciousness of God making all things well. 
and that it to understand and appreciate this great act of love is more honor to God than us delighting in any particular thing. I don't think she's saying that having the knowledge of particular things is bad. Cause she, I mean, she, she, she talks about there being delight in knowledge of like this loved creature, like, but that that's not the question we should be asking. And that if we are asking that question, we are distracting ourselves from the more beautiful thing that is the fullness of God's action. She ties it to the, the showing where she sees God in a point. And I think when we talked about that showing, we talked about the kind of uh, the the outside time nature of the way she's kind of conceiving. She's trying to get us to shift our perspective away from us situated in time, in history, in 14th century Norwich struggling with why this stuff is happening around trying to shift our perspective from that to God's perfect orchestration of all things to this good end. She even says, not only would I be glad for nothing in particular, but also not greatly disturbed by any manner of thing. So it's not just that she would be happy with good news. She wouldn't be particularly bothered by bad news. She would just be um, detached from it. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's loving everything and holding everything to yourself in a in a way that a way that you can a way that you can see through the day-to-day things to the i guess the big picture as we as we say sometimes that god loves everything god loves everyone God is taking care of everything. God makes everything happen. So focusing on a specific single thing is like putting, putting an earthly thing or a fleshly thing above the big spiritual picture. I um, want to tweak that a little bit because I don't think detachment is um, quite um, what she's getting. At. I, I would maybe use the word equanimity, like kind of um, so analogy. Um, I'm thinking of an analogy to kind of a relationship or, or marriage. Um You've got the conflicts on the day-to-day. And if you get bogged down in those conflicts such that you lose perspective of what the nature of the relationship is, this, this grand arc of what a marriage is, then... And you you get like they, they those day to day conflicts drag you down, but if you if you keep your eye on what it's all about, what this sacramental relationship is about, then that individual conflict it's not that you're detached from the conflict, but you see its place. In, I'm trying to come up with a better word than the big picture, but it, it you you see 
if if you keep your eye trained on what's really going on, the fundamental reality of what's happening, um, then you can experience the and and engage in the the specifics in a way that is more grounded because you're, you're grounding yourself in the knowledge here, the knowledge that all things shall be well in a, in a, um, in a relationship that the knowledge of the commitment in the relationship um, that you can, you, you can have a more profound, a deeper, a firmer foundation so that you don't get swept along by the highs and lows. So all the stock market investment people tell you not to look at your stock prices every day. Yes. Because they'll be up one day, they'll be down the next day, they'll be, and you will drive yourself crazy if you look at them every day. If you look at them every three or six months or every year, then you see that the overall trend is whatever the overall trend is. But Right. Um, that's kind of what I hear you saying that if you step back and focus on less detail and the bigger trends or the, the overall outcome yeah. now, Oh, so all will be well. And that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, on, on the grandest scale, everything's going to be well, but it might still mean that not everything is universally well for everybody. I mean, maybe yeah. it means that not everybody has a good time. Yeah. Maybe there is actual real suffering. And that's why I don't think she's advocating detachment. Um, but perspective. I think one side effect of her, like if she asks and gets an answer, what about, person a and God says, Oh, everything's going to be fine with person a. Then she's going to say, well, we're at it. What about person B? And then God's going to be like, well, person B falls down a well in a week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, bad stuff still happens, right? Mm -hmm. Even if everything's going to be well, we've already established for the first 34 chapters of this book that everything being well doesn't remove the fact that people will still have suffering. That's the whole thing is Mm -hmm. like, we don't deny the reality of suffering. We place suffering within a bigger context. Mm -hmm. And so she's trying to retreat from the bigger context back down to a smaller context. Mm -hmm. And it's like the lesson so far is like, don't, don't get involved in the details. So does that mean something true for our own lives as well, not to focus on good days versus bad days, good hours versus bad hours. Is it okay to pray for a specific thing to happen? Or is it okay to pray for a specific person? I think, yes, okay. Um, Good, even. Um, so long as that is not where our whole spiritual life is oriented to. Um, I, I see this as being not so much a one or the other, but a, a question of what are we organizing our spiritual life around? Are we organizing it around the ups and downs, the wells, the woes? Um, or are we organizing our spiritual lives around looking at the big picture, looking at God as God has revealed himself? Um, and and I, th- I think, and I, I think what I hear from Julian is that if you, orient yourself to the ups and downs, the wells and the woes, you are going to lose sight of the big picture. But if you orient yourself towards the big picture, you will see everything 
and understand how it all fits together. Yes. That you won't be unaware of the day-to-day. You won't be disengaged from praying for individual people. But as if you are if you uh if your whole being is oriented towards adoring God in his great deed, um then you will still see those things in their proper place. Which, whereas the other way around, if you're looking at the nitty gritty, you're going to totally miss the big picture. Yeah. So now this is my inner stance, my inner orientation, whenever, and this happens every time there's some big event, a uh, school shooting, a mass shooting, um, police brutality, mm-hmm. and it happens all over social media. You know, if you're pastor doesn't preach on X, Y, Z, get up and leave and find a new church. And it happens every single time. And um, sometimes I hear calls from both parishioners and people beyond my church who think that it's their job to tell me what to <laughs> preach. Um, like telling me that I, if I know what's good for me, I better preach on whatever's happening in the news. Um, and I almost never do because my inner orientation is that I need to be constantly talking to the congregation that I have in front of me about Jesus and the gospel. And that might reach up out of the empty tomb sometimes and grab a hold of what's going on. Um, but, and you know how frequent mass shootings are and episodes of police brutality and episodes of injustice and episodes of, you know, war around the world. Um, if I were to focus on whatever was the latest thing in the news, that's all I would ever talk about. But I, and I try to kind of defend myself sometimes against people who think that I should do something different that I keep saying that if I can encourage the congregation in front of me to constantly grasp the bigger picture of the gospel within the whole history of the world, and then they can see how that applies to this particular event and they'll have the tool to apply it for themselves to the next event, then that's good. But I, you know, we, we are in a, a time of great and in a church of, of great activism. And sometimes like saying, I'm really, I'm just going to focus on the gospel readings. And if I can, I will mention the, the news of the day. It's, it's not, not very satisfying to some people, but every preacher has to decide for themselves what they're going to preach. <laughs> I think I'm 100% with you. And then, on the one or two times a year when I do it, it carries more weight. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And I haven't alienated all the people who disagree with my politics instantly. So they're still actually in the pews. (laughs) Well, no one's in the pews anymore. (laughs) There's not, I, I mean, I'm tempted to say there's no hope, but there's not as much hope in topical messages. Um, we we can we can flail at specific problems we can throw theology at them um just like we throw activism at them but that doesn't just just like organizing around symptoms of injustice doesn't actually change anything it doesn't change any underlying structures so giving theological messages only about the particular issues doesn't give us any spiritual grounding for actual transformation. Treating symptoms, whether they be like material political symptoms or spiritual symptoms, doesn't do anything in the long run. We need to treat the underlying issues, which in politics is treating the under, like addressing the underlying structures. But in church, it's, it's 
shifting our fundamental um our fundamental understandings of ourselves and the world. And you don't do that by preaching a sermon about the theology of gun violence. Because that's, that's not where the, the fundamental shift is going to happen. The fundamental shift is going to happen as people encounter the gospel, as they encounter God in Christ. So I'm, I'm 100% with you, Chris. I, I, um, and as somebody in the pews, I almost never find topical sermons edifying. I agree, 100%. Almost never. For all the reasons, for all the reasons that you both said. I think they're very satisfying if, uh, if a preacher says all the things that you already think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if a preacher challenges you, it's, it takes a lot of humility to say, I vehemently disagree with that preacher, but they, you know, that there must be some sort of grace or blessing or message or something in it. And, you know, we, we want leaders that reflect our own biases. Um, if we're honest about it, I mean, I think a, f- a few of us are really good at um, kind of giving space for people who have a very different perspective, but the way things are right now, both in the church and beyond the church, we're so siloed. We're so like, we want to be in echo chambers because we all feel under attack in our souls and we all want agreement. We all, we want people who affirm us because we all feel as though. Um, I think I think in America in 2020, everybody feels like an embattled minority. Like everybody feels as though everyone else is out to get them, and that mm-hmm. they're clinging on to their little, like their little community, mm-hmm. because. This, the the divisions are so stark these days. It's a big spiritual crisis. But Julian, yeah, I, I, Julian is asking us to look at the big picture because there's there's not hope in the in the in directing our gaze on these individual problems. It's it's only when we when we look at the big picture that we see that all the Lord does is rightful and what he tolerates is honorable. Like that's it's. And and I think that's why she prefaces that, that that very meaty section about rightfulness and toleration with this, like this only makes sense if we have the right perspective, this Mm. will only be sensical, let alone a message of hope if we maintain the right perspective and look not at the, not at the individual creatures, but at the act of God revealing himself. Yes. Cause she's about to introduce evil. Right. And the fact that if evil exists, it has to be tolerated by God. Mm. And in order to prep us to swallow that pretty big pill, she has to say that we have to remember that evil is one part of a complicated holistic entity. Right. That is all in the control of God. Right. Because otherwise, we can feel pretty shaken up by by the idea that evil is tolerated by God, which is pretty much what she says, right? All that is good. Our Lord does. And what is evil? Our Lord tolerates. And that it's what not, is, not the evil that's honorable, but the toleration of God is honorable. Yeah. So the number of people who have ostensibly left the church because of some evil and they say, well, you, why has God done this, permitted it, allowed it to happen? We don't have a good answer to that. And so they say, I'm done. 
very first church that I was in, there was a, a young lady who came to church um, every day. She got married recently, uh, but she came to church every Sunday because her parents said, you know, we, we as a family go to church. But she had decided that she was an atheist because um, her classmates, and this was in Kentucky, very kind of Baptist and Pentecostal part of the world, her classmates said, you know, if 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 you pray for for your neighbor, God will heal him and keep him alive. Mm-hmm. You know what happened? Yeah. He got sick. He died. And so she said, all right, I'm done with God. Mm-hmm. Like I, I did the math that I was told to do and didn't like the outcome. And so I am done. And so I, to the best of my knowledge, she's never reversed that decision, but she still came and worked in the, in the, um, like in the nursery, she just didn't come to worship. Um, we won't have an answer to those things if we have the wrong perspective. Yes. So what does it mean to tolerate evil? It means to let it exist. To let it happen. I mean, I think this is, this is um, a corollary of evil one God doing all that is done and two mm-hmm. evil, not being a deed mm-hmm. that, what? that, that why does not God, God, why doesn't God just not allow evil then? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is God doesn't allow evil because if there weren't evil for us to overcome, we wouldn't grow anywhere. We'd right. be just the same as we were when we started out. And that God made us for a reason. God made us for holiness and perfection and glory and beauty and tremendous everything. And we can't get there unless we have to overcome something. And evil is what we have to overcome in ourselves and I suppose in in the world. But of course, we can't fully do that because evil persists until it then finally will not persist until it finally goes away. But for now, and I hate to say this because I know I sound stupid, but evil does us a favor, basically. I can affirm that. By his toleration, we fall. And in his blessed love with his power and his wisdom, we are preserved. And by mercy and grace, we are raised to many more joys. If we take seriously this idea that redeeming us was the highest joy for Christ... Like if not, not just like making the best of a bad situation, but that suffering for us to redeem us was the highest joy possible for Christ. Then evil has to be allowed for this perfection to come about that that the, the perfection is in the redemption. A, st- a static perfection versus, I mean, we have a static perfection versus a, a perfection that comes out of fall and self-sacrificial redemption and love. And Julian and God are saying, this is the highest good. This kind of perfection that comes out of redemption is the highest good. And so for that to come about, God allows evil. Yes. I think that's a very good and important thing to sort through 
at a time of relative peace in one's soul mm-hmm. and is probably not a good pastoral lead mm-hmm. when you're dealing with somebody who's experienced some evil. Absolutely. Yes. Um, yes. Which is why, and, and that goes for, you know, for a lot of things I've, I've had a number of times when, you know, I've, I've preached a sermon about my understanding of what happens or what might happen to people um, after they die, but I don't preach those sermons at a funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I preach a very different sermon at a funeral because the needs are different. Helping mm-hmm. people to understand intellectually is very different from mm-hmm. saying what needs to be said to soothe somebody's pain. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you've just experienced some evil and you're feeling raw and wounded, don't take away from it that we are saying, that God is just doing this to you to make you stronger. Mm-hmm. That's uh, put this episode of this podcast away for now and, mm-hmm. and find a good pastor who can say different words to you to meet that need. Because what you need right now is consolation. But mm-hmm. if you're listening to this and you're, you're, um, you're not in that frame of mind, um, or in that frame of heart, then yeah, um, we're uh, yeah we're, we're approaching this kind of theologically. What does it mean to um, to let the overcoming of evil be? part of the work of redemption. I mean, hasn't Jesus done everything necessary on the cross? Yes. But over the course of our life, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. This is the difference between justification and sanctification, as I see it, that mm-hmm. that we get right with God in an instant, but then over the course of a life or sometimes beyond this mortal life and into the next one to come, we're in the process of being molded and shaped into Christ's likeness. St. Paul says, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and no longer I who lives, but he who lives in me. Um, and that that is a process of gentle transformation and appropriation which is why every every moment of encounter with any sort of evil in my life is uniting me to that work on the cross. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess so. I guess this this is maybe what it means when Jesus says that all the disciples need to take up their own cross and follow. Mm-hmm. That we each have our portion of evil to contend with. There's no way to the cross unless we're carrying a cross and occasionally we feel pretty nailed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the cross can't just be off in the distance, a pretty thing that we gaze at. Yeah. Um, the working out of our salvation. Yeah, in fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why I've always had no problem. Unlike some of the more Protestant friends of mine, I have no problem with a crucifix. I've got one Mm. right behind us, you know, in, in my video shot right there. Um, there's, you know, sometimes this debate crucifix versus an empty cross. And, uh, and I've always had no problem at all with crucifixes. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's not an abstract symbol something happened on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what about the crucifixes that have Jesus with the crown and the chasuble and the <clears throat> Christus Rex? Christus I think they Rex. call those yeah. Christus Victor, Christus Rex. Yeah. On the, or one of those. What about those? I like them. They're okay. pretty. Yeah. I can appreciate the, the theological point they're making. Um, mm-hmm. I, When I think about fixing my eyes on the cross, mm-hmm. that's not what I think about. 
same. Um, I think about this suffering servant, the sacrificial love unfolding and uniting myself with that. Um, so I can, I can appreciate what mm-hmm. Christus Victor crucifixes do for people. Um, but it is when I, when I am trying to restore my perspective to see the big picture, that's not where I look. How about Same. you, Marguerite? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I have a, I have a crucifix in front of, uh, hanging up in front of my desk that I look at all every day when I pray morning prayer and afternoon prayer. And, um, it is, I looked for it for a long time <clears throat> and it is, uh, it's perfect. It's perfect for me. It's, I, it is my heaven. That's Julian said about looking at the cross instead of looking up to heaven. Mm-hmm. Same. Well, have we squeezed chapter 35 pretty dry for now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think for now. We've gone over an hour, but it's been a good over an hour. Yes. Yes, it has. So what little snippet of it do we want to end with? One of you pick something and read it to us. And just as he ordained all for the best, just so he works constantly and leads it to that same end. And he is ever most pleased with himself and with his works. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.